0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Around the world, more than enough food is produced to feed the global population. Nevertheless, hundreds of millions of people still go hungry. After steadily declining for a decade, world hunger is on the rise today, reportedly affecting nearly 10% of people globally. The growing food crisis is driven largely by wars, the COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, and climate change. Welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute series on ideas. I'm your host, Renee Garfinkel, and I'm very pleased to be talking with Micha Odenheimer today. He's an activist and former journalist who has reported from worldwide locations, including Somalia, Ethiopia, Myanmar, Bangladesh, and India. Born in California and educated at Yale, Micha is an ordained Orthodox rabbi for whom reducing global poverty is a religious imperative. In 2007, Micha founded Tevel B'Tzedek, an organization whose goal is to connect Israel and the Jewish people to the challenge of healing poverty and environmental destruction on a global level as well as in Israel itself. Micha Odenheimer, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Renee. Glad to be here.
0: Let's start with the very basics. What does the name Tevel B'Tzedek mean, and how did you come to start the organization?
1: Tevel is, uh is a phrase from the Psalms, um, and uh, it, it also appears in the Kabbalah Shabbat, in the, in the ritual... Uh, prayer that we have on the, in, in order to welcome this, this, the Sabbath. Um, and it means, uh, the world with justice. Uh, it comes from the phrase, God will judge the world with justice. Uh, but the judging is also in the context of a lot of great joy. If you look at the, if you look at the Psalm, uh, you know, the very forests and the rivers are, are rejoicing for this, uh, for, for what, for, for equitability. um, yeah. And I came to found the organization. I I got involved with reporting from the global south uh, when I, I flew to Ethiopia in 1990, when I heard that the uh, remainder of Ethiopian Jews had moved down from their rural villages and were now in Addis Ababa uh, because... Um, the communist government headed by Mengistu Haile Mariam was uh, had renewed uh, relations with Israel after the Soviet Union fell. Rebels were uh, fighting. They were, he was fighting rebels uh, and uh, needed help from the United States. He needed to find new friends. And, and I started to report from there and got very involved with the story of the, the Ethiopian Jews, the Beta Israel that year, but also got very involved with Ethiopia and what was happening there and uh, eventually stayed after Operation Solomon for the rebel entry into Addis Ababa and saw that I could, it was exciting and interesting and possible to report from uh, places in the global south in crisis Uh, And I began to I began to travel and report for mostly for Haaretz, a little bit for The Washington Post from places like Haiti and uh, Somalia and Iraq and Nepal and all kinds of places. Some of them you mentioned. And um, but while I was there, this this coincided with with the start of um, neoliberal globalization. It was the fall of China, the fall of the opening of China, the fall of the Soviet Union. There was a triumph of neoliberal capitalism. And I was very interested in what was happening to the... Uh, Poorest people, which were the majority in most of these countries, uh, during this era of globalization, and began to think about also what is our responsibility as Jews, as Israelis, uh, in this era of uh, creating, uh, knitting together a a global economy um, for the first time, for the first time ever. And uh, began to ponder that from a Jewish point of view, and began to try and understand what was happening to these poor. People and poor, to the poorest people, um, and uh, who were not really included in the globalization process, uh, and 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 through that began to think about how to create a link between Israel, Jews, and the problem of poverty, extreme poverty in the global south. And uh, then one more thing is I, I traveled to India with my family and I saw how many young Israelis were traveling in India and in Nepal and other places. And I thought, ah, that could be a good place to start to get these young people involved. So that was the idea uh, that that sparked uh, my my thinking and my the idea about founding Tevel Bitsedek.
0: Now, it's not a new idea for synagogues, as well as churches and mosques, all houses of worship, to be involved in feeding the poor of their own communities. Uh, They could give charity, uh, develop soup kitchens, uh, build food pantries, and and other very familiar ways of helping the poor have enough to eat. But it's much less common— especially in the absence of uh, missionary goals, uh, for houses of worship to feel a call to go out to help and develop sustainable agriculture in a faraway, strange, foreign place. Uh, Tell us about the religious philosophy that motivates your work.
1: Well, I I think that at the root, I've always felt that, the great, you know, sort of secret engine of Judaism and Jewish religion, without which uh, we would have much, much less spiritual energy, is the Messianic idea. And the Messianic idea, I'm not talking about you know, someone coming on a white donkey and declaring himself the Messiah. But I'm coming. I'm I. I, I do believe that there is a, a a thrust throughout the Jewish scripture and throughout um, Jewish mysticism and Jewish tradition uh, that says that human beings and human society uh, can get much, much better, can undergo a great transformation. And there is a vision for a world, uh, that is better, that is fairer, that is more equitable, that is more just, that's more beautiful. Uh, and, and, uh, this to me, uh, links with, uh, the links with an idea of, of responsibility that we have, that we all have for each other. You know, there's a saying, there's a phrase, um, uh, uh, all, all of Israel is responsible for each other in terms of the commandments. But the Balshemtov, one of my heroes, the founder of Hasidism, he said that we have the same kind of mutual responsibility with all the with the whole world, with all the nations of the world, in terms of uh, the seven Noahide commandments. One of which is creating a system of justice, and to me that means a system, a just system, uh, of justice, a political system uh, um, that that will uh, really w- will be responsible for creating a common good for all of us. So. F- I, you know, I come from post-Holocaust. I was born 13 years after the Holocaust. My dad was a refugee from Germany. I grew up in the Orthodox world, which was almost everybody I knew. All the children I knew growing up, all the kids in my class were all Holocaust. Uh, their one of their parents was in Auschwitz or hiding out somewhere. Very, you know, very affected and shadowed by the Holocaust. And on the one hand, that drove a lot of I think Jews towards just thinking about survival and continuation of tradition which i appreciate but on the other hand i think that there is a great kind of a fixing to be made in our relationship to to the world that we finally you know we've had this great trauma but now we're not only you know we still have our vulnerabilities but we're also at the center of globalization and the global economy and my thinking when i founded Tevel was you know if not now when we've been carrying this vision of social justice of uh equitability of goodness uh that comes out through the torah through the prophets for so many many generations and now perhaps for the first time we really have the possibility of taking that vision and making it a reality uh so that was very strong motivator for uh for me uh in terms of uh, religious life i see for example there's You know, there's the story of the of the going out of Egypt, and basically, what happens in the story is that first Pharaoh becomes very, very powerful through the agency of Joseph, who ends up buying, uh, you know, ends up storing the food and then getting everybody's money for Pharaoh and all their animals and so on and so forth. There's this great uh, kind of concentration of wealth that enables Pharaoh eventually to enslave. Uh, the Hebrews that are there. And then when he when the Exodus happens, uh, when the uh, redemption happens, you have the, the economy of the desert, which is the mana, which you can't save and which comes down for each person uh, enough to feed each person each day. And then a little jar of that mana is taken, and it's one of the only things that's put into the Holy of Holies, along with the broken tablets and the full tablets, is this jar of mana, which really represents what each person needs in order to eat every day. And so to me, that's a message that's like part of our deep religious symbol is remembering that every single person needs to eat every day and to eat well and to me that kind of um you know that 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 material quest for a world in which we are all fed uh is as much uh, a a a religious uh aspiration as um every other aspect of uh worshiping god
0: uh who was it who said um, your material uh, well being is my spiritual calling. Uh, I so think that was
1: the Kutsker. was it that? Ma- Kut- Menachem Mendel of Kutsk.
0: Oh, uh, unusual. Uh, <laughs> That's what I heard. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it could be. It fits in with his uh, persona. Uh, but when you started this idea, it was, it, it was pretty radical, especially then. I mean, it's not what was on people's minds. Uh, globalization was seen to be a, a great good that would lift all boats. Uh, what kind of reaction did you get when you started talking about this idea before it was a reality?
1: Even when I, even when I began to to start it, uh, you know, as well as before, when I was talking about it, there were, there were some people uh, both on the right and on the left that were very critical of me. uh, And uh, the ones, the ones on the right would say, uh, the poor, there's a saying from the Talmud, the poor of your, uh, the poor of your city come first, comes first. Um, In other words, in the Talmud, if there's. You know, a hundred people standing in line, uh, and they're 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 starving. So you have more responsibility in your city to the people of your city because you've created help to create, you know, you're responsible for them. You're part of the same political and economic system. So people would say to me, oh, the poor of your city comes first. Why aren't you helping here in Israel? Um, If it was from the right, then they would mean helping poor Jewish people. If it was from the left, they would mean, why aren't you helping Palestinians? Um, And uh, so... You know, my response to that was, first of all, to point out that in terms of the poor of your city comes first, that's only when all other things are equal. But when there are people in the world that don't have enough food or don't have any access to medical care or to clean water... um, you know and and up against that there are people who perhaps need better education and i'm not saying that poverty in the first world is also terrible i'm not saying that it's not but i'm just saying that that phrase the poor of your city come first doesn't apply here because there's there's there is a higher there is a hierarchy of needs and the other the response I would have is that we're now all really, we are, we've are we become one city. I mean, a city was a political economic unit at the time of the Talmud. It was like states are now. And in reality, everything we do, we now know that the world is so small. And everything we do affects each other, whether it's environmentally, um, whether it's economically, whether it's politically, whether it's in terms of health. I mean, we saw that now just in COVID. We can't get away from that. I remember walking out into a very, uh, very remote village in Nepal. Where we had to walk for hours from the, any road, any dirt road to get to the village. And I come to the village and there's somebody who says, oh, you're from Israel? My brother is in Haifa. He's, he's, uh, he's a caretaker taking care of a, an old Holocaust survivor. <laughs> you know. So we're all knit together in so many ways. Um, and, uh, so that, that was, I, I learned to become an expert at tr- trying to, but there were people who were, who were angry. You know, if I told them I'm going to, I'm going to be in Nepal and I'm, I'm going to go, I'm helping to set up a Coca-Cola factory. They would say, oh, great. So interesting. When I t- would tell them that I'm going to help poor villagers, they would get indignant. So that was, that was funny, but I think that's passed. I think that there is a more of a recognition now that we are all so, close closely uh, connected and uh, have a mutual responsibility to to each other
0: We've had some uh, powerful lessons in that over the past couple of years and right now there's a lot of talk and writing about the impact of the war in Ukraine on global hunger uh, but but the relate that that is that uh, Russia won't allow. Ukraine to export its its wheat to any, any place in the world that depends on it. <clears throat> but the relationship between war and hunger works in the other direction as well, doesn't it? Uh, an argument has been made that the Syrian civil war just a few years ago was a function in part of rural farmers whose farms had failed migrating to cities and not being able to make it there So they migrated to bigger cities where there was agitation because there wasn't enough to eat and enough housing. Um, In one of your essays that I I read, you suggest that genocide in Darfur, I think most of our listeners will remember that, um, uh, would likely not have happened had there not been migration from failed farms. Can you talk about those ideas?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that definitely uh, the two things are uh, connected, uh, both uh, hunger and war in in many ways. Uh, uh, you know, the Talmud already says that... Uh, uh when there's hunger in the house then there's uh fights in the house it happens on you know on on all levels not only on the on the national level or you know but also even even in every in every single in every single fa- family um But, uh, and and also it's not, the war in Ukraine, when asked to understand that it's not only affecting hunger, world hunger, because of, uh, because they're not uh, able to sell their wheat, but also because when the oil prices go up, so prices for everything goes up, especially in countries, for example, like Zambia, uh, but really all the poorest countries that are not producing enough food uh, to feed their own population, because there's not enough investment in the small farmers, in my opinion, uh, to produce, to produce food. And and instead it's easier to just bring things, uh, from South Africa, if it's uh, you know, or if it's Nepal and from India and, um, and then all, all the food products go up once the, once the oil prices, uh, once the oil prices go up. Uh, but certainly, uh, you see in many countries in Africa and in other places how Uh, lack of food and lack of any opportunity and um, any um, path to prosperity uh, makes, you know, creates generations of a generation of, of young people um, I'm thinking of people who are between 18 and 30, for example, who are then uh, very much, uh, you know, they're on the outs uh, and it's very easy to agitate them. And very easy to get them uh, involved in political activity that veers on violence and to create instability. So it's it's for sure true that uh, you know hunger and lack of prosperity. Um, and lack of opportunity uh, creates tremendous instability, and uh, as well as as well as as well as migration and burdens that countries cannot uh, uh, really uh, that the poor countries uh, can't very hard for them to uh, to take on to take to take on themselves. There, there's a you know the famous economist Amartya Sen. His first book was called Famine, and what he shows there is that almost always famine is political and not um, and not just because there's not enough food, it's the question of who gets the food and where the food, what the food is used for. So, for example, he shows that in, in uh, the, great fam- the last Great Famine in India during World War II uh, in Bengal, and other places uh the problem was first of all with people who there was a there was a a harvest that wasn't great but it wasn't terrible but people there was a rumor that it was going to be not so good so uh so profiteers bought up as much of that uh, much of that harvest as they could in order to make Prices sky high. At the same time, the British government also brought a lot of that food, took it and exported it to use for their troops. And so the hunger was caused not because the the famine was caused, not because there was an objective lack of food, but because of how the food, uh, both economically and politically, was was being used.
0: You, you mentioned investment that uh, people and corporations and others... Uh, don't invest in these remote poor places. But what about those large international organizations like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund that were set up specifically in order to reduce global poverty? Do they invest in these small villages?
1: Well, first of all, what happened with the IMF and the, and the World Bank Um, And then later with the World Trade Organization um, and the GATT agreements, uh, all of these international financial uh, organizations and agreements is I think that they did tremendous damage, actually. Uh, Not that there weren't some good projects from the World Bank, especially. uh, But the policy, what happened was that in the 1970s, a lot of money came into the United States because um, because of the. Um, the oil embargo, so the oil producing countries had tons of cash on their hand. They parked in the United States. The US banks and European banks needed to do something with it. So they lent it at very low interest rates to uh, more than 100 global south countries. and then in 19 at very low interest rates and said you can use this for development but of course a lot of the global south countries were run by dictators and they didn't you know they they didn't care and they they invested in their armies they invested in their offshore you know their Swiss accounts etc and the development didn't happen and it was exaggerated in any case and then the 1980s came and the interest rates shot up when Reagan got in uh, the interest rates shot up and these countries were in tremendous uh, they couldn't pay back the, the loans and the IMF came in and said to them look we're gonna help you with these loans we're gonna make you know we're gonna help you with these loans but if you want us to do that then you have to change your economy you have to cut basically to you cut your budgets in order to lower taxes so that it'll be attractive for foreign investment because there was a strong belief in foreign in there was a strong need for uh, for globalization among corporations, among the corporate world, and the IMF was really serving that, that interest. And I think a lot of people sincerely believe that that was the way to help these poor countries. But the result was, who, when you have to cut your budget, what do you cut? So, you cut health care for the poor, you cut agricultural extension for the poor. In other words, many of these countries had extensive, and still have some, but had extensive um, help for poor villages, sending advisors, sending agricultural experts, uh, giving them, helping them with fertilizer. That was cut. A lot of that was just totally cut. And all the programs for the poor were cut in the interest of. Um, of uh, cutting budgets and and creating an atmosphere where foreign investors would want to come in. So to my mind, the IMF did tremendous, tremendous damage. And if anyone wants to read a great book about this, you can read Globalization and Its Discontents by Joseph Stieglitz, who was the head economist for a while of the World Bank and is a Nobel Prize winning economist. He tells the story very, very, very well. Um, so yeah, so I think that that now if you're asking about, you know, sort of places like, uh, you know, things like USAID, the the great the organizations that are really meant to help the poor. So there's a debate within those organizations and oftentimes about, about the small farmers and about whether to help them or whether really the small farming villages are a thing of the past. And now the time is really to uh, just invest in people who are uh, already on a higher level and that will help food security and forget about the villagers, they're going to have to immigrate into the cities or they're going to have to work as uh, hired hands in much, much larger farms. That is one opinion. It's not everybody's opinion. but That is one opinion. I strongly disagree with that. I think that the small farmers are can uh, really uh, um, be a key to food security and that there is tremendous opportunity for them. Um but you don't see a huge investment in small farmers in many developing world countries, also because in general, they don't have much political power, and the poor you are, the less political power you have often not always but often and therefore people don't pay you know don't pay enough attention to them
0: All right All right and they're already very, very, very poor uh we We moved real quickly past the uh, the pandemic. I'd like to get back to it for a minute. What how did the COVID-19 pandemic interact with ongoing rural poverty in for example, Africa? Take the country of your choice.
1: Right. Okay, so, you know, in Africa, mostly the pandemic in terms of health, it did affect people in the cities. Uh, and there were, there were deaths and a lot of deaths in, 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 for example, in Zambia, in Lusaka, um, that's the capital city. So there was a wave of, of deaths there. It actually hardly affected the, the, the villages because the villages live outdoors. The villagers, most of the time when they interact with each other, it's outdoors. Even when they're indoors, it's half outdoors. And, um, very young population so covid as covid didn't affect the 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 poor populations they have other things to worry about in terms of health for example malaria um but of course it did interrupt uh supply chains it uh killed of course killed tourism um it also many many people in countries like Nepal and in other places, Bangladesh, somewhat less in Africa, but also rely on remittances. They work. Uh, uh, people were working abroad and were sent home, or were just not able to work anymore for for a long period of time. So so those countries suffered because of lack of uh, lack of remittances. And, of course, uh, development work was very hard to continue so many aspects of uh, development work, especially for us. We weren't able to work during COVID because we work in groups. All of our work is in building community and building groups and working together with farmers groups and women's groups, etc. And that was not a, We weren't able to do that during during COVID because we weren't supposed to get people together into in, in, in groups. Um, but there was there was a strong effect, but not not so much in terms of in terms of the the disease itself
0: well western countries and israel as well have a great deal of agricultural know-how including but not limited to actual technology y- human know-how and and technological know-how why not simply send that agricultural know-how and technology to villages and let the local people take it from there.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's, that, would, that would be a great idea. Uh, what we found is that technological know-how is not enough. We take a more comprehensive approach that when we look at a poor village, it needs, yes, it needs more know-how, more agricultural capacity, can help tremendously, Also, it needs to solve, it's often water problems and irrigation problems, which Israel can help with that too, of course, uh, because very very often uh, the poor villages only can grow during the rainy season so you have water you have agricultural know-how you need inputs you need help with fertilizers with with controlling with pest control you need credit you need to be the, the farmers need to be able to invest you need to help create uh, community institutions or to strengthen community institutions so farmers cooperatives uh, collection centers which will buy up everybody's uh produce and uh, bring it to market together because otherwise people can't really afford the transportation and they also don't have any bargaining power if they're just coming with you know 20 kilos of something but if they come all together with thousands of kilos then then the the buyers are 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 very interested so there's uh and then also we we like to also train a group of young people from the village itself to sort of be our mobilizers and to spread ideas and to help the agronomist because you can have an agronomist who's teaching but in order for villagers to really make a transition they have to have people who are also will pay attention to what's going on in their field and the agronomist won't be able to do that so we try and create a sort of a workforce of young people who are responsible for every corner of the village and bringing back information and uh and eventually they go on to become lead farmers and really uh help help the village uh uh on- onwards um but you know village villagers are on a very uh you know they they're they very risk averse because their margins are so tiny and if one thing happens then they are plunged into tremendous destitution so In order to really get them to adopt new ideas, you really have to take a comprehensive approach and to work with them carefully for a few years. That's our experience, and that's what we try to do. Because just bringing a technique or just bringing one thing or just bringing water or whatever, it's not going to work uh, you know, it can help a little bit. It can perhaps help with the strongest people who are, have the ability to take that technology and move it forward. But if you really want to help a whole village economy, then you have to look at the total environment and really, uh, help with that transformation.
0: Well, tell us about one of your successful projects. What, what did you learn from it? How did it work?
1: So, yeah, we. So I'm sort of describing exactly what we do. I, I think our mo, our most successful project so far uh, was in Nepal, in uh, our last large project in Nepal before we started to focus more on Africa um and uh we ended up being in the village area for five years because the earthquake interrupted our work after a year and just knocked down all the houses in the in the whole village Um, but what we did first of all we very much believe in presence in continued presence so if we have we had agronomists and we also introduced uh beekeeping so we had experts on beekeeping living in this village area. It was a village area of about 15,000 people, so, and quite remote. Oftentimes, we find development agencies send people that come once a week, once a month. We found it very important to have people living in the village, knowing everybody. Uh, We created teaching, little small teaching farms in 10 or 12 corners of the village, Um, and also very much involved women women are a huge, uh, lever for change in the villages. Uh, I don't like to be a, um, how would you call it? discriminating on the basis of, uh, of sex. But I have to say that the women are often much, much more engaged in the future of their village than sometimes than the men are not always, of course, there are some great men too, but Working with women is imperative and, and helping them gain uh, leadership in in the villages is very, very important. Um, and also working with young people. Um, and like I said, we created this youth service program for um, one young person from every hundred households and gave them a lot of training. And they were our force. They went out there and they helped Create savings groups in every uh, area of the village. They actually were able to raise funds from the village itself and create community centers where all kinds of meetings were taking place. They helped. They helped with that. With create kitchen gardens, you know, yeah. sort of small scale, semi-commercial mm-hmm. uh, vegetable gardens in every corner of every every person um so we found that to be a, a tremendous thing we also brought volunteers from israel and and the volunteers they can't lead the 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 charge so to speak because really you need to be there for at least three years people are agronomists really need you know you need it's continuous it's ongoing and volunteers aren't going to come for that much and also they don't know the language and so on but they they were there is an advantage to having outside eyes and also creates a lot of excitement because often in villages in places like Nepal or places like sub-Saharan Africa have never really encountered people from uh, Europe or from Israel or the United States before. And it's a novelty. And there's a lot to learn. They, they, there's a lot to learn uh, for for them, too. Um, just as there's, you know, I, I think that the, the the people who come over from Israel learn just as much from the villagers, um, but also the villagers definitely benefit from having uh, having having foreigners there, um, and uh, there are, there are, there, are things, there are there is mutual learning going on. So that's also has has been has been really important.
0: How long do the international volunteers stay?
1: Uh, So in the past, we've had different kinds of programs. The longest ones were for one year. Uh, More classic one was for four months at a time. And then we also had something that we called, you know, cultural exchange program, which was uh, for a a larger group and for people, you know, just sort of backpacking through, which was a month. We never do anything for less, less than a month.
0: And the volunteers who come for four months or a year are they mostly students who are going on to work in some or study in some related field? What, what do they take? The ones who come for a
1: year, definitely. The ones who come for a year are definitely uh, usually students, either post BA or post MA. Uh, By the way, we also match them with people from the country itself uh, uh, who are also post-BA or post-MA, and uh, there, there, there's a tremendous need, by the way, for, to give the first opportunity for young people, say, from Nepal or from Zambia, uh, who've studied international development or studied agriculture to get their first uh, actual experience in villages. So we match them with internationals, and uh, they work together, and, of course, they help with the language, and the internationals help with certain skills uh, that they bring with them. Um, and and so yes, the four month people might be post army uh, if they're from Israel uh, and have had some kind of uh, responsibility in the army or have been in youth groups and know how to how uh, you know and have been have been uh, guidance have been counselors madrichim before. Uh, if they're from the United States, they're usually post VA. Um, but not necessarily in international development.
0: Because it must be socially quite challenging to take someone from Chicago or Tel Aviv and have them live for months in a remote sub-Saharan village. uh, I'd love to see a movie, a film about their experience. Uh, what what project is Tefil Psedek working on now, uh, now that the COVID embargo is lifted? So I guess now now what,
1: yeah. Yes. No, we're we're definitely uh, yeah, we're definitely back uh, back in the field and we're right now working on a project in Zambia where with a very poor village area, which basically just grows one maize and soybean crop a year during the rainy season. And then most of it, the rest of the time, Sixty-eight percent. We did we did an extensive baseline like research beforehand about what's going on before we got in. Sixty-eight percent of the people are uh, make most of their living. They report by burning down trees for charcoal, and then going miles and miles to sell the charcoal in the city. Of course, it's really eking out a living, and in the meantime, destroying their own environment and creating desertification. Um, these are very poor People report making less than one dollar a day. Um, but great people with tremendous energy as well. So what we are doing there is this comprehensive approach. We actually got from the chief about 100 dunums of land um, in which we are uh, taking special populations and helping and, and, you know, teaching them on the land and enabling them to make a kind of an income. One of them is the young people who um, will will benefit from the land and at the same time, the land and the irrigation and the inputs that we give them, but at the same time they'll become our workforce because we're trying to reach out to the entire village. We're trying to now solve the water problem. We're hoping to be able to create reservoirs there, um, uh and we've already dug for we've already dug for dug for water we're now uh together with the government we're sort of helping partners with the government and bringing instruction uh workshops on 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 how to uh, on the 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 next thing that they're going to do which is maize we want to also get enough irrigation for them to start planting vegetables. But first of all, they, they all plant maize, kind of a corn, which is their staple. So we're, we have a series of seven workshops that we're bringing to all the villages, three villages that we're, we're working in. Um, and we also have a kind of a partnership with the University of Zambia. We just signed a, a memorandum of understanding, where they will be sending interns to us who've already done five years of agricultural studies. Um, And we're going to be teaching financial literacy, all kinds of things. So that's our big project. We're also trying to work with the government. We haven't signed yet, but we're trying to work with the government on their farmers' training centers. They have all these farmers' training centers that are pretty much paralyzed because they don't have funding. And we're showing a way in which they can create production units that will fund their activities and uh, try and create a private-public partnership um, and also we hope to be, we were invited by a South African, uh, actually a black South African, um, uh, NGO, uh, that wants us to help come work in the KwaZulu area in, in South Africa. So that's, that's on deck. We'll see what happens with that.
0: That sounds terrific. Uh, finally, Micha, how can people learn more about your creative organization? I
1: uh, people can go to www.tevelbetzedek.org. and uh, they can also. I'm very happy if people are really interested in helping uh, to send uh, send an email to me, Micha M i c h a at t e v e l b t z e d e k dot Happy to talk to people, and you know here in. in Yes, we really need help. Uh, We need help. We need funding. We need publicity. We need all kinds of things.
0: Well, I hope this podcast helps. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us about this critical and vital work, Micha.
1: Thank you so much for giving me the chance, the opportunity.
0: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.